Greetings, dear listener, and welcome to Natural 20-somethings, an audio program detailing and discussing the danger, depth, difficulties, diversions, dice, decadence, and drama of D&D. We're ever so pleased you're here. Hello and welcome back to Natural 20-somethings. I'm Olivia. And I'm Laurel. And this week we are delving into D&D live play shows. Uh, We know them. We love them. If you are here, you probably know them too. Um, Things like Critical Role, The Adventure Zone, NADPOT, you name it. There's so many out there. Uh, The one Laurel's on, if you haven't checked that out. (laughs) Look at me. It's called Riftwalkers, by the way. Um, But anyway, so the question for this week is, what kinds of effects do these shows have on our own personal gameplay? So um, to start us off, we have a statement here that our uh, esteemed researcher Laurel has come up with for us from a book called Media and Society, A Critical Perspective by Arthur Asa Berger. Um, And he says, the media are, we must remember, part of society. The media entertain us, socialize us, inform us, educate us, sell things to us, and indoctrinate us, among other things. The media help shape our identities, our attitudes, and have many other effects. There are a number of different and conflicting views about how to characterize the media and understand the role they play in society and in our lives. And I feel like the TLDR of that is media affects us, whether we want it to or not, and in very good ways and in very bad ways. So. Laurel, my question for you is how has the consumption of live play D&D media influenced you as a player? For me as a player, the way that I can say it's like tangibly affected me is that it it gives me people to compare myself to outside of the people at my own table. I think that when you're playing with people at a table, you naturally understand that you are different people and you don't have to be exactly like them and you automatically have some overlap because they are the people with whom you play D&D. But when you watch a table that is like outside of you that has been sort of very highly polished for media consumption, it puts this little like glossy layer over everything where you look at it and you're like, oh, this is how I could be. This is how I should be. It's kind of like, I do I do genuinely feel like anybody who likes doing something and watches a professional do that thing, like you want to be like them. You want to emulate them. You know, if you're a, a track runner and you're watching Usain Bolt, like, do you not want to be Usain Bolt? Like, of course you do. That's kind of like how I would compare this. And so it's affected me in the sense that like, it makes me very aware of how I behave at the table, both as like a character and myself, but then also how am I applying the rules how can I be a more creative spellcaster how can I be a more effective rogue like like insert anything here I've probably watched some professional quote-unquote D&D player do it and it I I can't help but want to be like them yeah the Hussein Bolt thing is really funny to me It's it's true. Like like <laughs> I know that like Matt Mercer is not Usain Bolt, but he's kind of the Usain Bolt of D and D. He's the name we reach for when we try to talk about the person who's really good at that one thing. Yeah, it's true. 
Right. Um, it is really interesting to hear you talk about this, though, because for me, it is a completely different perspective. So I feel like, and I don't want to put, you know, words or labels on you if you don't want them, but it sounds very like... <laughs> I'm all about labels. Give give me the label. Uh, it's very much a performer's response to that. Oh, yes. Oh, yes. Because you have a theater background. You are an actor. So you come at this with a very, like, acting mind, which is very cool. I come at everything with an acting mind, and I feel like that is to my detriment. <laughs> Often to your benefit, though. Once a theater kid, always a theater kid. You can't escape that 2011 performance of The Crucible, and you never will. Oh, that's so specific, and that's a trauma I'm not going to examine for you. (laughs) Anyway... But yeah, for me, I have found that what I get out of actual play shows is more that I have a very keen sense of the rules now, and I have an even keener sense of when it's okay to break them, which I think is extremely valuable for me. Like, of course, like there are all these players who are doing absolutely wonderful things like being amazing spellcasters or what have you, what you said. And, you know, I love taking little bits and pieces from them to create my own little, like, mosaic of how I play D&D. But for the most part, I really like watching and consuming a variety of D&D content because the tables are so different and you can see where they choose to bend rules and what effect that has on story and on the table, which is just endlessly fascinating to me. Obviously, we have a whole podcast. But um, I understand the rules so much better than if I just sat down and read the player's handbook. Oh, absolutely. I think seeing them in execution is very formative to the way that a lot of us play. Like, I, I truly don't think that I would have been as interested or as confident a D&D player had it not been for live play shows. And I would also say to your point about, like, there's a lot of variety in the way that different people engage with D&D. I think that that's fantastic in the sense that there's not any one right way to do it. Mm-hmm. And and it's a great example of seeing that perfectly on display. Like none of these people play D&D the same way and you don't have to do it their way and you don't have to do it anyone else's way either. And I think that that's a great thing. Yeah. So the next question for you, Laurel, obviously D&D live play shows affects us as players. We see a majority of players on the table, but the DM sort of takes up a big space. So for you, how has, because I know you DM way more than I do, how have these shows affected how you DM specifically? Yeah, that's, that I think is almost a bigger question for me than how they've influenced me as a player because I feel like they have had a much more profound impact on me as a DM. Um, initially, not in a positive way. I think that the first time I DM'd, I felt so much pressure to do it perfectly. I felt like, oh my gosh, I've watched all these DMs. I've watched them in their element. They're so amazing. Their players have such a good time. It's so much fun to watch and listen to. I have to be that. Like, I... I have to be Matt Mercer. And I think that something that I didn't realize is that one like (laughs) when you're a dm nobody can see you sweat like no one knows (laughs) when you're making something up at the drop of a hat but you feel like they can you feel like your players can see straight through you and so feeling like everybody could see straight through me and feeling like i also had to deliver matt mercer levels of a DD campaign was like so much pressure for me i absolutely hated it (laughs) i was like i finished that campaign and i was like never again never again never again never again i hate dming i hate it so much i'll never do it ever again and a huge portion of that for me was this um was preparation
situation was this like weird nebulous idea I had about how much prep any of these DMs were doing. I was like, well, you know, he has all of these DCs set and he, you know, has all these magic items ready to go. And he has like an entire city where everything's going on all of the time and he knows because that's how it seems from the outside. And I don't know how much work Matt does or does not put into his. I imagine it's quite a lot, but that doesn't work for me. And I didn't know that. And so I like hated DMing because I thought that I had to do it this specific way because for all intents and purposes, any DM who DMs for a live play show is kind of a gold standard. And so it's impossible not to compare yourself to that and be like, oh, that's how I should be running my game. That's how I need to do X, Y, or Z thing. And not one, get down on yourself about it. Two, put way too much pressure on yourself for your game to be perfect. Absolutely. I agree with that. And I think, I think too, there's there's a difference between like, I need to be running a game like this and I want to be running a game like this. And that distinction is really important and really hard to get at, um, I found, because, you know, I am ex- still extremely intimidated by DMing. And, you know, for a while I thought like, if I did modules, I would, you know, be copping out or whatever. Yeah. But I started DMing, sorry, being a keeper of arcane lore for a Call of Cthulhu game, which was completely different and something I had never seen live play shows for before. And so it took a lot of that pressure off. And then once I realized I could do Call of Cthulhu, I was like, oh, I can do D&D. Like, that's easy. I know the rules way better with D&D. And so that sort of shift really helped. And like, I have found like, I'm thinking less like, oh, I really need to be a DM like Brennan Lee Mulligan. And more like, I'd love to DM like Brennan Lee Mulligan. And what does he do that I love? So let me take some of that. Mm-hmm. Absolutely. I think that's interesting too. I, I like that distinction between I need to do this and I want to do this. Because I think that there's there's a certain level of I'm not Brennan. I'll never be Brennan. I'm not Matt. I'll never be Matt. I'm not Griffin. I'll never be Griffin. We are different people. And I bring something different to the table than any of them do. And it's 100% okay for me to just like steal the things from them that I like. Like one, they'll never know. Two... <laughs> It's free content. Like, I don't I don't care. Like, I can take whatever I want to take away from these people and then use that to better myself as a DM. And I, I like, I love that. I love that it can be a source of inspiration and material beyond this, like, pressure to perform a specific way. I do think that getting beyond that hump is a challenge. Yeah. But it is one that is well worth taking because the wealth of information and content and, like, inspiration that you can then take from these people is fast. And there's a reason they're so popular because they're really enjoyable. It's amazing to experience story like this and it's natural to want to emulate that in your own games because that's what you want. And I think the important thing to realize is that as you said earlier, it's polished. It's got this kind of like shiny gleam to it. Even, you know, even with things like Critical Role which are which is live, you know, it's in a studio. They have professional mics. They are voice actors. Yeah, they in and of themselves are professional actors. I think people forget that constantly. I'm like, these these people do this for a living. Right. And so you cannot compare yourself to them because they are doing 
doing this for a job and to put it out for you for media consumption. And I think that's where I get hung up the most where like sometimes I'll be sitting playing being like this is an amazing experience. I wish I could share it. It'd be amazing if this were a live play show. And then I have to walk it back and go like I don't want that because for me it actually would ruin the experience because like part of the joy of D&D for me is not being observed by anyone but my friends. (laughs) (laughs) And this has brought up an interesting point for me, which is something that I don't think I've ever really talked about or like vocalized is that I play on a D&D live play podcast. And that experience of sitting down with everybody to record that podcast is not at all like playing Mm D&D. It straight up isn't. Like I love doing it. It's so much fun. I am so grateful to be a member of that party, but it's not D&D with my friends. (laughs) Like it is, we are here. We are content creators. We are creatives. We are a team and we are making a show. Yeah, it's not, you know, casual Friday night D&D with the boys. Like it's it's very different. And I don't I don't think that like we don't see that, you know? You don't see the cast of Dimension 20 having to retake a line like 8 times <laughs> or like change something because that's actually not how the rule goes. You know, like you just see this beautiful final product in the end. And like of co- of course, of course it's going to be quote unquote better or more entertaining than your home game cuz your home game's going to come with like random tangents of your friends telling you what they're cooking for dinner like as they're actively cooking dinner. Like, right. It's just it's it's a different environment, I think, and there's something special and good about both, but I think trying to squish them together is the wrong move. Yeah, it's interesting to hear you say that because, you know, part of the joy of D&D for me is the like tangents and like little side quests that people take in their own lives you know like I'm caught I constantly have to move when I'm playing which is why bluetooth headphones are a godsend (laughs) but like I'd never survive on an actual play show because like I have to constantly be moving and like I have to pee so much all the time (laughs) (laughs) you know it's that messiness that I love about it. And I love that feeling of making mistakes. That's what I love about D&D. And there certainly is quite a lot of that objectively on, you know, actual play shows, but it's not to the degree that you see in your home games. No, certainly not. And I think some of that has to do with the fact that like in some sense there has to be a story trajectory. Yeah. In in an in an actual play show. Definitely. Like if you don't if you're not telling a story, if it's just like, you know, s- some dudes sitting around playing D and D, it's not it's not fun to watch. Like as a consumer, I don't have any interest in that. The other thing too that I'm noticing even as we're talking is that like we are talking about all these great DMs and we have not once mentioned a woman. Yeah, true. <laughs> And the only one that I know right away that I reach for is Abria Iyengar, who is absolutely fabulous, of course. But I know her through these big productions from places that are run by men as well. And that's not to say, like, these aren't, like, wonderful people. Obviously, they are. Like... There's a reason we love them, but I think that actually has a huge effect. That has a huge impact when the content people reach for, it's just, it feels very like Starship Enterprise-y, if that makes sense, where it's like, you're surrounded by this like wonderful, diverse cast, but the person in the captain's chair is a white man, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. And I think this is, I'll say this about this topic, is that I think it's just kind of indicative of all media and like the world. Certainly. <laughs> this is this is the world we live in. This is how most media is it doesn't surprise me literally at all that D&D is as much of a boys club as the entertainment industry on the whole like it's a subset of that so naturally of course it's 
it's going to follow the same sort of trend. Which is unfortunate. And it's not that, you know, amazing uh, female and non-binary DMs don't exist and aren't producing amazing content for consumption because they are. They just don't get the attention that a lot of other ones do. And that's that's what's sort of frustrating. But it also creates a lot of opportunity. But yeah, again, like I feel like if we were to start making actual play D&D content right now, I'd feel so much pressure to be like the best possible DM or the best possible group because pretty much all of us are women. And it's just like, wow, okay, we have to be twice as good to get noticed half as much, you know? Oh yeah, absolutely. It's it's just, it's a fact of the game. <laughs> yeah. And it's unfortunate, but it is reality for, for what that's worth. So my final question for you, Laurel, then is how does being aware of the effects of these, you know, golden standards change our relationship with the media itself? For me, I think the change and effect that it has is it allows me to distance myself from the relationship that I had developed with the media. Like I kind of talked about this at the beginning it was this really sort of like ah I have so much pressure I have to be perfect I have to be just like them and then becoming aware of the fact that I felt that and that that wasn't actually the case and that was not the point of any of these live play shows was not to like teach me how to DM or show me the right way to do it allowed me to be like oh okay I don't have to do that I don't have to feel this pressure I don't have to perform a specific way or perform at all for that matter no one's watching me allowed me to embrace them for what they were take away from them what I wanted and leave the rest at the door. What about you? I have a very similar experience, I think. My takeaway from them is I honestly sort of have come full circle with it where I first started listening to D&D shows because I was like, oh, I've heard this is a great story. So, hey, why not check that out? And then as I got more mired in D&D itself and played more games, I was very much listening to it analytically and being like, okay, what are these players doing? What is this DM doing? How am I uh, doing this differently? Like, how should I be playing D&D? And then I have sort of shifted back. Like, I've come full circle where I'm just like, oh, I've played enough D&D at this point and it's been different every single time that I'm just like oh I can just like relax (laughs) yeah (laughs) um I can let it be a story again and I think too that's been really valuable for me as well because it's allowed me to understand when to let go of certain things Mm -hmm. because there are certain times when they just stop being enjoyable for me and being able to say like I've never been one to stop in the middle of a book like I remember the first time I ever gave up on a book and I was so heartbroken you know (laughs) (laughs) meanwhile I'm just like chucking books across the room (laughs) I don't care about the main character goodbye I don't care but realizing that I didn't have to muster up that energy if it no longer was enjoyable from a media standpoint even if it's sort of like the show everyone watches I'm okay letting go of that now and letting it be like okay like I just didn't enjoy this as a story okay close the book return it to the library I don't have to finish it if I don't want to yeah absolutely I think overall I would weight D&D live play shows as like a net positive like are all of them good no are all of them <laughs> for everyone, no. But I think that part of the reason why D&D is sort of in this renaissance that it's in now is because 
people are getting exposed to it and they're excited about it. And I love that. I love that. I want more. I want more people playing. I want everybody to play d and <laughs> that wants to anyways. Like I, I, I genuinely think like this is has been a good thing and it's good to have examples of good DMs and so much variety in that sense. You just have to have that very careful relationship with you don't have to be a live play show. You are enough on your own. You heard it here first, you guys. <laughs> I hope this isn't the first time you've I know. heard it, but if it is, let me just reiterate, you are enough. In all aspects of your life. A cauldron of abilities more overpowered than divine smite. It's Witch's Homebrew. Okay, which is homebrew? Uh, birthdays, we all got them. <laughs> sometimes we celebrate them, and sometimes we celebrate them in D and D. So today we have a uh, a a variant rule for birthdays from D and D Wiki. Thank you, D and D Wiki. The character can only celebrate a birthday if the following conditions are met: they are not currently in a quest, adventure, or encounter. The date of the party is set within a week of the character's birthday. The character has at least three other party members and or friends to celebrate with. If the character can celebrate a birthday, they are able to have an official birthday party. They receive the following. Every character with whom the birthday character is celebrating gives them a gift of money or equipment worth at least 6 GP. The characters celebrate with cake and possibly ice cream. The celebrating characters are neither hungry nor fatigued during the party. The birthday character gains plus one to all charisma checks and saving throws against all creatures that are not aware it is the character's birthday. <laughs> uh, so, just as a, as a side note before I get into any... <laughs> of the questions about this, I definitely am going to start calling myself the birthday character on my birthday. <laughs> That's so funny. It just kills me. Like, what a great gender-neutral term for birthday person. <laughs> birthday character. Uh, what do you think of these conditions and benefits? I mean, full disclosure, I liked how we played birthdays better. <laughs> <laughs> well, but this is the thing. This is the thing that I think is interesting about this is that this is a rule that could be technically applicable to any game. Mm. And like the way that we've done birthdays in the past is like, oh shit, <laughs> someone's birthday's happening. <laughs> Let's make sure it happens in game. Like, I, And you can't take that and apply it to anybody else, which no. I think is what makes this so intriguing to talk about is it's like, how do you make a birthday rule that anybody could conceivably use? Mm. That's true. I do think it's interesting that there are like certain conditions that have to be met in order for a birthday to actually happen. Like, I mean, personally, they have like laser tag birthdays are a thing. Why can't they have a birthday party on a quest? <laughs> <laughs> that, that's interesting to me as well. I think the thing for me is that this rule reads like a rule that can only be applicable to a very long-term game. Like, this is a rule that you are applying if you have been playing this campaign for years, at the very least. Like, your character has to set the date of their party within a week of their birthday. Like, that that's so much time. Like, I've played D&D &D campaigns that have been, like, months long, but over the course of, like, three days for the characters. Like, right. What if one of those days was their birthday? Mm. SOL, I guess. No cake for you. It is very cute, though. It's just kind of adorable. It's just like, it's just so wholesome. <laughs> I like the gift requirement. I like the, um, you have a plus one. Yep. <laughs> on your charisma checks against people that don't know it's your birthday. That's so funny. <laughs> 
That's hilarious. That's the opposite of what rule I think it would be. Like, what if somebody attacks you on your birthday? If you're like, hey, it's my birthday, they might hesitate for like half a second. (laughs) (laughs) Like, oh, shoot. Sorry. Wait. Nah. Yeah, right? Uh, Aim for the one with the party hat. (laughs) (laughs) Can you imagine like like a a half work in a little party hat, like eating some cake and ice cream? I love it. I love it so much. Oh, my God. The little tusks. There's a little ice cream sprinkle on the tusks. Like, it's just... (laughs) So cute. It's so cute. The 6GP feels a little arbitrary. (laughs) Uh, Yeah, I don't know what that's supposed... Well, this is 6GP, though, in a world presuming you play with copper and silver as well. Yeah. But why not, like, 5GP? Like, what? I don't know. Maybe 5GP was too cheap. That's... Well, this is... This brings us to the next question of, like, what would we add or remove... Keeping in mind that, like, this rule needs to be applicable to anybody's game. I would probably take out the quest requirement. I would, too. I think that you should be able to celebrate a birthday whenever you want. Yeah, right? The uh, planet doesn't stop rotating around its sun just because you're on a quest. (laughs) But yeah, I I think, you know, most D&D games, you're on a quest all the time. Most D&D games that I've played, I'm on a singular quest the entire time. Right. I would probably also... I would want to add like a little addendum of like, what if the other characters want to throw a surprise party for them? Ooh, surprise party variant rule. Yep, exactly. So there should be a surprise party variant. Um, <laughs> I think it would be kind of cool if you like rolled for your birthday and like arranged it ahead of time and like, yeah, you know, uh, have like different situations. So obviously there's the like the character, sorry, the birthday character throws the party themselves. <laughs> Or the party members throw them a surprise party. Or they realize it's their birthday in the middle of the quest and they have a spontaneous thing that they put together. You know? Mm-hmm. Like, uh, I think, you know, you should roll for crafts with, like, twigs and stuff. You know? <laughs> party activities. Yeah, correct. I do think overall, like, for creating a quote-unquote rule for birthdays, this absolutely achieves that. Like, it, it is a rule. There are conditions that you have to meet and there are requirements that come with the birthday party. And I think that that is a lot of fun. Um, For me, birthdays typically get celebrated in D&D when it's a player's birthday at the table or like the DM's birthday. Mm -hmm. And then we just kind of like make it that character's birthday and it's just fun for the sake of being fun. But I do think if you were going to make birthdays like a legit rule, this functions pretty well. Yeah, I like it. Also, birthdays in D&D, it's just a wonderful thing. It's so fun. Birthday characters for everyone. Yeah. Some magic we just find spellbinding. Okay, so for spellbinding today, we have the curious conundrum of time stop. Uh, I don't know why I said it like that. (laughs) It's filled me with dread. I wrote that phrasing and you filled me with dread. (laughs) So, Laurel, you picked this one out because you said that you thought you understood what the spell was and then you actually read the spell and it was completely different. Yeah, yeah, I, I, like, my specific note is, this is a spell I thought I understood until I didn't. <laughs> yep. So I'm, I'm very interested to talk about it today. So I'll read out the description first. It's a long one, so buckle up. 
you briefly stop the flow of time for everyone but yourself. No time passes for other creatures while you take 1d4 plus 1 turns in a row during which you can use actions and move as normal. The spell ends if one of the actions you use during this period or any effects that you create during this period affects a creature other than you or an object being worn or carried by someone other than you. In addition, the spell ends if you move to a place more than 1,000 feet from the location where you cast it. So, Laurel, what did you think this time stop spell did? <laughs> like, the, the, like, very disciplinarian tone <laughs> with which you said my name was great. I'm... Well, what did you do? <laughs> the way that I thought that time stop worked was you could do basically anything you wanted on these 1d4 plus 1 turns without this condition of the actions needing to not affect any other creature in the stopped time zone or objects. Like, this completely negates every single time I have used or I have seen the time stop spell used. Because typically what I see it used for is this, like, I'm gonna unleash three damage spells at you, boom, 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 and then they all happen all at once and then the time stop wizard like disappears or whatever but you can't you can't technically do that because those damage spells affect objects and creatures in the area that you're in and so my brain instantly is like well then what do you do with it like (laughs) what is it what is it for if not that it's really interesting and i I think it's really cool that you picked this out to talk about during this specific episode because the reason I know what time stop does is because I listened to Nadpod. Mm, a perfect example. Right. It's been used, I think, twice on the podcast. Um, and it's been used like this, which I think is interesting. And so for me, I have seen it used. It's actually phenomenal. So I've seen it used more as like, you know, take time, heal up, buff yourself, and get ready to buff or debuff your allies slash enemies, respectively. But does that spell not affect your allies and enemies? Right, but you you budget it so that like the last action you do where it would expire anyway is the one that affects the other creature. Mm. I just can't think of that many, I mean, and this is 100% different like possessor of time stop to time stop. I don't know what I would cast on myself or, you know, like, because I, I, like, I, I, I genuinely can't off the top of my head think of the most useful way to use this spell obviously it exists it wouldn't be written this way otherwise but to me comparing it to other ninth level spells it doesn't seem as worth the slot i think it's circumstance because for me like thinking about this this is pretty darn powerful for me like the idea that you could set a glyph of warding for example that if somebody steps on it like and their foot is like hovering above the thing you know that's one way that you could definitely use that and then it would you know trigger that damage for you if you wanted um or even like oftentimes when you are like this high level to have access to ninth level spells your battlefield is going to look very different and there's usually like something else going on that you have to do in order to help out and win the actual battle it's usually not a, like at least for the games that I've played and seen yeah there's there's environmental factors that are but you can't interact with objects either which is interesting you can't interact with objects being worn or carried by someone other than you you can interact Ooh, with objects good point. Yeah. It's not like you can't, like, move things around. You just can't take something out of somebody's pocket. Yeah. Yeah, exactly. 
but you can, you know, like move a table so that somebody trips over it. You know, like there's a billion and one ways that you could take this. And I really love it. I do think what you say about it being circumstantial is very applicable. Like this could be the perfect spell depending on the circumstance. And it is powerful in that sense. I think where it becomes like less maybe appealing than other ninth level spells is is that circumstantialness of it. Like, is this the ninth level spell that you want to choose to learn? Right. Versus, you know, wish or what have you. I think something that's interesting to me from a DM standpoint is that this is kind of a standard like Archmage spell. And when I'm DMing a full caster, I have no interest in... manipulating the board to that degree like I'm not thinking of ways to do that as a spellcaster and this is a peek behind the curtain of Laurel's DM I'm not thinking of ways to achieve what I want to achieve as a spellcaster I've already built that into the encounter like yeah there are things that I have set in motion that it's like this is how this is going to go and I am not dependent on time stop to make it happen Mm -hmm. so I think it's interesting that that's included in an archmage's repertoire of spells yeah. yeah when you know you can't just cast cone of cold five times because <laughs> that's what i want to do i'm like archmage cone of cold i was like a pokemon that's oh my gosh being a dm is like being a pokemon master so i should ask you how we would modify or change it but i already have an answer and i want to answer it so oh okay go for it <laughs> um so i'm fully stealing an idea from the hit disney channel tv show wizards of waverly place <laughs> Oh, God. Okay. (laughs) There's a time stop spell for, you know, these wizards uh, where it was invented by somebody who only had one leg. So in order for the spell to work, you have to hop on one leg and it only lasts as long as you can hop on one leg. (laughs) (laughs) So I think IRL, if you are able to, if you are physically able to do that, I think you should be able to do as much as you can while hopping on one leg. (laughs) That is absurd. I... I I don't want to like that, but I do think that that is quite fun. That's just to add hilarity to it, you know? Yeah, that's some shenanigans level D&D right there. Yeah. I, I think for me in considering would I change this spell, my answer is no, even though I don't like it. <laughs> <laughs> Because I think that it does stretch you as a player, and I like spells that do that. And I think, like, there is very obviously a reason why this is the way that it's written. And, you know, being able to cast Cone of Cold five times (laughs) is too many. And that's not a power anybody should possess. Like, I, I think that fundamentally, I agree with where it's landed, even if I personally am like, Oh, but I wanted to cast Cone of Cold five times. I'm gonna cry in my corner about it. I'll be just fine. (laughs) (laughs) So, is it worth a ninth level slot for you? Um, (laughs) No, I'd probably downgrade it to an eight, honestly. I think that just how circumstantial it is, I would be less willing to spend a ninth level spell slot on it. Yeah, just because you get so few of them. You get so few, and I just, I think there are other ninth level spells that I would look to before this. But, I mean, I also play healers and... (laughs) That that mass heal and that power word heal look delicious to me at all times. <laughs> I don't know. I kind of like it as is, and I think it's worth a ninth level spot. Aside from the uh, hopping on one foot. Aside from the hopping on one foot. Laurel. 
would you like to present us with your inspiration this week? I would love to. Um, I, I specifically picked my inspiration this week based on the topic, um, which is this D&D content explosion I find very inspirational. I love that anybody who loves this game, who has a microphone and a computer that they can record on and friends to record with can just make a D&D show. Like, I think that that is so cool. And I love seeing how many people are just on, like, fun little small audience but loving audience shows and I love seeing people like engage and interact with these bigger more popular shows I think it's created something of like a community and then many communities within that community and like I just it, it's so fun to me to see so many people producing so many beautiful things that's lovely I'm gonna cry <laughs> <laughs> Thank you, dear listener, for lending your ears. May the stories you tell be grand and humble in equal measure. May the characters you meet be brimming with adventure. And may the chances you take lead to some natural twenties.